You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time around we're taking a look at The Nom number 29, which covers events of June 1968. That's why I'm playing the very familiar Mrs. Robinson by Simon and Garfunkel, a song that was number one in June of 1968, but is also famous for its role in one of the best movies in 1967, which is the Dustin Hoffman film, The Graduate. The Mrs. Robinson of the song's title is played by Anne Bancroft. She winds up having an affair with Hoffman's recently graduated Benjamin Braddock. Toward the end of the film, an early version of the song is featured, a version of the song that also makes its way into the end of the film, American Pie, during a scene involving Fitch and Stifler's mom. And I mention that because it had me cracking up like crazy in the theater, and I'm pretty sure I'm the only one who was. Anyway, I'm going to do my summary a little different than usual for this one, because while the story does take place in June 1968, quite a number of real-life events are depicted, and I wanted to make sure that we get the whole story, including the historical context, as I go through it. I'll then do a general historical context, and then do my review right before the letters and ads. War and, quote, peace, which has the word peace in quotes, as I mentioned, and yes, I made air quotes with my fingers as I did it, came out on December 27, 1988, and it has an April 1989 cover date. The cover is by Ron Wagner and Andy Kubert and shows a soldier on radio while he's crouching behind a tank in a city that's been more or less blown apart. It's a depiction of a scene on page 6 and serves us okay. The story was written by Doug Murray, penciled by Wayne Van Zandt, inked by Frank Springer, lettered by Phil Felix, colored by Steve Millor. Don Daly was the editor, Larry Hammer was the consulting editor, Pat Redding was the managing editor, and Tom DeFalco was your editor-in-chief. It's June 1968, and we begin in Paris with the Paris peace talks. Things are not going well, as the North Vietnamese are refusing to negotiate and will offer nothing further until the bombing of their country stops. As Ambassador Harriman exits the conference, he tells reporters on the United States' position, which is to stop bombing and the condition of mutual troop withdrawals. This is very accurate. The talks have begun in earnest in, on May 10th between a delegation headed by Zhuan Ti and U.S. Ambassador-at-Large W. Avril Harriman. The bombing campaign was North Vietnam's biggest sticking point, and it wouldn't be until the end of October that President Johnson agreed to end the airstrikes. That was not the only problem, however. Two sides of the Vietnamese conflict, the portion of the North Vietnamese representing the Viet Cong and South Vietnam, refused to recognize one another, meaning that they did not recognize one another's legitimacy. According to Wikipedia, North Vietnam 
and Harriman negotiated a deal. Harriman resolved this dispute by developing a system by which North Vietnam and the United States would be named parties, and NLF officials could join the North Vietnam team without being recognized by South Vietnam, while Saigon's representatives joined the U.S. allies. A similar debate concerned the shape of a table to be used at the conference. The North favored a circular table in which all parties, including NLF representatives, would appear to be equal in importance. The South Vietnamese argued only that a rectangular table was acceptable, for only a rectangle could show two distinct sides to the conflict. Eventually, a compromise was reached in which representatives of the northern and southern governments would sit at a circular table, with members representing all other parties sitting at individual square tables around them. We then shift to Kolon, which is just outside of Saigon. There are airstrikes going on, and a group of soldiers and two tanks are trying to fend off attacks, which is a depiction of our cover. This is more than likely a depiction of the, quote, mini-tet that I mentioned last episode. The VC launched several strikes in South Vietnam and Saigon in an effort to establish a new offensive. This particular area of a city is where the famous photograph depicted a few issues ago on the cover of issue number 24 takes place. Meanwhile, at an R&R station in Camran Bay, some of the guys of the 23rd relax on a beach and we see Ice and Pig with a couple of girls. Pig says that they owe crews for the R&R, but Ice notes that it's the least he can do after they gave him another year of their lives, and then notes that this is probably the first time he's looked at the stars since he came to Vietnam. After what the caption says is a full and satisfying night, and you can read between the lines on that, Pig and Ice wake up and go get some chow. Ice reads Stars and Stripes at breakfast and notes that it's possible that Charlie might walk out on the Paris peace talks. Pig mentions that they won't walk, especially if they can get something out of the U.S. Ice's girl from the night before stops by the table, and a few minutes later, Ice goes elsewhere with her. Camron Bay, by the way, was the key naval base during the war, being used as a center of the Navy's air patrols and operations, as well as a communications base. We then go to California on June 5th at the Los Angeles Ambassador Hotel. Bobby Kennedy finishes giving a speech after winning the 1968 California primary, and then back in the kitchen, a man waits with a revolver and shoots him. Kennedy's bodyguards wrestle the assassin to the ground, and Kennedy is on the floor bleeding out. We see a copy of the LA Times with the headline, Kennedy Wins Primary. Obviously, this happened. Kennedy had won the California primary that day, a primary that is rather late in the primary season, but considering that Johnson had stepped away from re-election earlier in the year, things were very competitive this late in the game. Besides, this is 1968, and primaries ran on a slightly different schedule, or at least things weren't finished as early as they have been in recent elections. Kennedy's assassination is the third of three political assassinations that has come to define the 1960s in a sense. The first is Bobby Kennedy's older brother, John F. Kennedy, who was President of the United States and assassinated on November 22, 1963, by Lee Harvey Oswald. I'm not going to get into second gunmen on the grassy knoll theories and all that, because while I find it fascinating and quite a bit credible, the Kennedy assassination theories is an entire podcast on its own. And no matter who did what, the assassination of JFK is a moment in the early 1960s that shattered the country's consciousness and is considered a cultural demarcation line of sorts. The next assassination is that of Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4, 1968. I'm not sure if I've mentioned this or not. A few issues before last, 
issue were within the timeline that Murray established, but I don't know if it was entirely clear, so I'll talk a little bit about it now. King, who had been the leader of the civil rights movement from its beginnings in the 1950s, had actually been campaigning heavily against the war in Vietnam and was in Memphis at the time when James Earl Ray fired shots from a building across from King's motel, hitting him as he stepped out of his room onto the balcony. The impact was felt just as widely as JFK's assassination, with riots breaking out in some cities and King basically becoming a martyr for the movement. And now we have Bobby Kennedy, who represented a youthfulness and quite a bit of hope for people who were supporting him. I'm not sure if he would have actually won the general election that year, but this did leave the Democratic Party in even more disarray than it already was and helped pave the way for Richard Nixon's election later in the year. Sirhan Sirhan, by the way, was the assassin, and he committed the deed because of Kennedy's support for Israel. Sirhan Sirhan is currently in prison. Back in Camran Bay, Ice reads about Kennedy's assassination, and his girl says, What can you do about it from here? Ice sighs and returns his attention to the girl, and we see another headline that Abrams is relieving Westmoreland and that, quote, Westy is to become the Army's 25th Chief of Staff. We see Westmoreland's speech on June 10th in Saigon. He says, Gentlemen, may I have your attention for a few minutes? I just wanted to say a few words before I turn my command over to General Abrams. As you know, the administration and I don't always see eye to eye. As you know, we have been forbidden to make attacks on communist infiltration points in Laos. The result is simple. They attacked on protective villages with complete impunity. We cannot try, as we might, protect every village in Hamlet. And if we cannot protect them, how can we expect them to continue fighting for us? Westmoreland is replaced by Creighton Abrams, who would hold that position and head up operations in Vietnam right up until 1972, the highlight of which was a tremendous drawdown of troops leading to the eventual withdrawal from Vietnam. Westmoreland himself would still play a role beyond his time in country after leaving on June 10th as he oversaw the investigation into the My Lai Massacre. His role in the Vietnam War has been the subject of quite a number of articles, books, and films. He died in 2005. Back at Cameron Bay, Ice's girl has been having a bad day as there are a number of people who are badly hurt and might not make it. Ice accompanies her to the hospital and talks to the platoon sergeant who is laid up with a broken leg. The sergeant explains that they were part of Operation Jeb Stewart III up around Quang Tri and were taken a little by surprise, plus the ARVN troops bugged out when things got heavy. Sergeant says that when he was patching up an ARVN soldier, the soldier basically says that they do not trust the United States because, as he says, they're sure that we're going to just sell them out so we can get the hell out of there. Operation Jeb Stewart III was an operation run by Company E, 52nd Infantry Regiment. According to Wikipedia, on May 17, 1968, Operation Jeb Stewart III commenced at Quang Tri and Tua Tien provinces from Hue City up to the DMZ. By this date, the 1st Cavalry Division had completed its mission in Aishaw Valley, disrupting the flow of troops and supplies from North Vietnam through Laos and resumed security operations in these two provinces. Operation Jeb Stewart III continued until November 1968 when the division was moved south near Cambodia in Operation Liberty Canyon. Later, Ice and his girl are on the beach again and he's lost in thought. He mentions that he has to go back tomorrow and she says, well, he's still got tonight. The next morning in the hospital ward, Ice asks the sergeant from the previous scene to take good care of her. 
Sarge says, sure thing. Man, be a fool not to. What's her name? You know? I don't even know. You find out. Take care, I says. Then he meets up with Pig and they notice two bombers flying over. They wonder where they're going and I says, whatever, let's go home. Home, Pigs asks. What else are you going to call it? I says. Back at the peace talks, the two sides are still hung up on the bombing argument. At the same time in Boston, Massachusetts, a jury enters a courtroom and announces that on the charge of aiding and abetting registrants to violate selective service laws, Dr. Spock and the others are guilty as charged. I mentioned the Dr. Spock thing back in historical context around the time I did issue 23. That is Dr. Benjamin Spock, the famous baby and childhood expert whose books on raising children were revolutionary and read throughout the country by many mothers and fathers of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s and beyond, including probably my own parents. In addition to his well-known role for helping raise the nation's children, Spock was also involved politically, joining the Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy in the early 1960s. In 1968, he was arrested and singled out along with four other people for charges of conspiracy to aid and abet resistance to the draft. He, of course, was convicted with three other people, and they were sentenced to two years in prison, but that time was never served, mostly due to an appeal that in 1969 would overturn his conviction. Other events in June 1968, by the way, include Valerie Solonis shooting Andy Warhol on June 5th, James Earl Ray getting arrested on the assassination of Martin Luther King on June 8th, and the premiere of the movie Rosemary's Baby on June 12th. So I'm going to take a break now, and then I'm going to come back with a review of the issue, and then I'll talk about the letters and the ads. Hey, Paul, what's up? Ah, not much. What's going on? I'm, I'm just a little confused lately. I... Yeah, what else is new? Well, you know, m- more than usual. I tried to go to get the shows that we just put up, and I was having problems finding them. Well, we have trouble finding. Well, I couldn't find Back to the Bins. I couldn't find Avengers Spotlight. Of course, you can only find those when I actually edit them. <clears throat> and um, <laughs> oh, you took the words you know, right out of my mouth. They're on the feed, Bill. Yeah, I know. That's where I went. I went to the feed, but they weren't there. You no, know, you got to go to the feed. You got to go to the Back to the Bins feed. The Back to the Bins feed? What's yeah, the that? Back to the Bins feed. You got to go to iTunes, you look for, look up Back to the Bins, and you subscribe to the Back to the Bins feed. But I went to Two True Freaks. Yeah, we're on that feed too. What? Where? On the feed. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're saying that we're on... All right, so if I wanted to go find the shows that we've done, I'm going to go on to iTunes, and I'm going to click on Back to the Bins... And I'll find Back to the Binge and Avengers Spotlight in the feed. Exactly. I don't even know what I'm talking about! Bill, you go to the feed. You subscribe to the show. You subscribe to whichever show you want. And then you get it. It's that simple. You just gotta go to the feed. What show do I want? Back to the Binge. Where? And Avengers Spotlight. Oh, I'm so confused. They're on iTunes. They're on 2TrueFreaks.com. You want them, uh, you get them. They're you all got there them? You. All the uh, shows are there. They're still all available, Bill. All right, on the so... Feed. The feed. If you say feed one more time, I'm going to break your arm. Uh, Scott, could you tell him... Hey, man, don't don't drag me into this, because uh, it's no skin off my ass. I'm on all the feeds. <laughs> Bastard. One of the toughest things about a book like this has to be the historical context. Because if, if Doug Murray is writing this in real time, 
there are real world events that are going to make their way all the way into the dead, daily lives of the soldiers of Vietnam. The assassination of Bobby Kennedy definitely has to be one. The Paris peace talks make sense as being another. Overall, Murray uses a fly-by-night romance between Ice and a Red Cross worker, whom they refer to as a donut dolly, which will something we'll define in our nom notes this time around, as a framing device for several different stories. Whereas this didn't work so well a few issues ago, it works pretty well here, probably because our characters are an R&R and not an action, so we don't have to worry about anything happening to them. I'm going to assume he's also being as historically accurate as possible when relating to the dialogue of peace talks, because they were quite heated and didn't lead anywhere. After all, the war wouldn't end until 1975 with the fall of Saigon. Murray picks the right events because they haven't had an impact on the war or show a cross-section of the turmoil that was 1968. Westmoreland stepping down was definitely going to be noticed, even though the average soldier probably didn't notice anything in terms of a change in their everyday lives. Bobby Kennedy's assassination, like I said, is a landmark moment of the 1960s, and the last pages with the conviction of Dr. Spock is noteworthy, but I think Murray may have put that in there possibly to show the unrest over the war is a lot more widespread than the stereotypical hippies that were protesting in San Francisco or on college campuses. Spock is a respected doctor, does not have the look of what we'd expect from a regular protester, so the idea that these people who were establishment, in a manner of speaking, were also protesting war... Well, that shows how widespread the protest actually is. The art is not particularly great. Once again, we have Frank Springer inking Wayne Van Zant, and we have a different colorist, so while everything is serviceable, it all looks a little bit off. Van Zant is good at getting historical details right, and I've seen that in this book as well as in his later work. Um, I talked with him way back a few months ago about his new book, Katusha, in addition to his work on the NAM, and, and I definitely see it there. He, he really has um, improved a lot with, with age, but I think Spring is just not the greatest match for him. It, it doesn't completely gel. I mean, it doesn't take me out of the story, but it seems the, there were things about it that seemed rushed in a way that I think of Isherwood and Phil Felix were on the art with Wayne Van Sant. It would have been a lot more solid, a lot more enjoyable to a certain extent. Incoming this month, James B. Cash of Cerritos, California writes in and asks, can you explain the military ranks in the Army, Air Force, Marines, and Navy? I've never got them straight. Can you also tell me what is a battalion, brigade, company, etc.? It really gets to be a pain when in every military magazine and combat comics, somebody is saying things like send in a battalion or something like that. Not everyone was in the military, just like not everybody plays football or baseball and doesn't understand everything sports comics talk about. All right, Doug says that's a very good point but it would take a bit too much of this letters page to answer your questions in full so i'll do half this issue the rest next okay okay then army ranks they are low to high private e1 is a recruit private e2 now called pfc or private first class lance corporal corporal slash specialist fourth class the specialist ranks are the same as the hard stripes the only difference is in responsibilities then you have fifth class spec five uh staff sergeant specialist six which is rare Sergeant slash Sergeant First Class slash Specialist Seventh is rare. A Master Sergeant or Specialist Eighth is almost unknown. Then you have a First Sergeant, Sergeant Major, Command Sergeant Major, Second Louis, First Louis, Captain Major, Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel, Brigadier General, which is one star, a Major General, which is two stars, Lieutenant Generals are three stars, a General is four stars, and a General of the Army is five stars. The next issue would be Unit Rankings. Jake Szanski. 
of Silver Creek, New York says, Mr. Murray, ever since the nom has come out, I have enjoyed reading it because of the art and realism, but since issue was 24, I haven't been too sure of things. First off, the embassy attack was at 4 a.m., not in broad daylight. Second, you show Ice throwing his A5, his 45 to Colonel Jacobson. The soldier who threw his pistol was a Marine standing there with two other guards. Also, the attack on the radio station was accurate, except for the deep VC didn't blow it up. They were all dislodged. These observations were from watching the Tet Offensive from the Vietnam War with Walter Cronkite. I still think your comic is the best, and until Ice talks about his past, make mine the nom. Doug writes, Dear Jake, I thought I made it clear in the letters page in number 24, but as I seem to have erred, here's the story. I know that some of the events in 24 and 25 were not totally accurate. My changing of the person throwing the 45 to ice was purely a device to allow me to show the events at all. Remember, this is a book about the boys of the 23rd, and to show an event, I have to put them there. The events are correct. The people are fictitious. As for the radio station, the VC did detonate their explosives inside. The building was not destroyed, but was badly damaged. This from several histories. Hope that satisfies you, Doug. PFC Charles Frazier writes in. Um, he says that I am overjoyed that someone is finally standing up and talking about the war in Vietnam. Although I was not in the war, I have strong feelings for those who were. I am stationed with the, tw- with the 2nd Battalion, 502nd Infantry Division. Even though your comic is not about the 101st, I am a grunt and all grunts are family. Your comic makes a statement the vets have been trying to express for years. I have the whole collection of the NOM so far. I'm now starting my collection of Semper Fi which was, by the way, another Marvel title that followed Marines. I don't think it was in the NOM. I think it was a modern-day Marine story one. I never bought it. All right, back to the letter. I am shipping to Germany in January of 89. Is there any way to get my subscription overseas? Doug says, just give the sub folks your change of address. They'll get it to you. And keep up with the excellent reading material. I am proud of being an American fighting man. Maybe next time the politicians will stay at home and let the grunts fight the war. The only way they know how as winners. PFC Charles Frazier, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. PS Pig is one heck of an M60 gunner. Philip Cobb from Taft, Tennessee writes about how this is a great magazine for young kids to understand what went on over there. He was very young when his dad was in the NAM. Uh, for a young kid, it's like a horror story. I was confused and scared. My father returned when I was two, and although I was happy to see him, I was still confused and scared, especially when the Navy took him away again, this time to the Mediterranean. I didn't have much to see, time to see, much less get to know my father. When he finally got out, I was very happy. I finally felt I had a father. Now we have trouble getting along. My father disagrees with everything I learned about Vietnam. He used to take body bags down the river to naval ships in the ocean. He says he never got to shoot back, even though his buddies were getting hit around him. I would like a favor. Could you please do an issue about the Navy men who worked up and down the river in the Vietnam War? And Doug says, there is a Brown River story coming up, but it concerns the Army rather than the Navy. I would suggest that you check out Semper Fi for more Navy stuff. We'll try to work something else in the future. Stay with us and thanks. Joey DuBose of San Antonio, Texas writes, I'm a 14-year-old who enjoys your series. I find it an amazing interpretation of the Vietnam War. My uncle served as a chopper pilot in Thailand with the from, with the Black Sheep Squadron of World War II fame. As a Marine, he brags all the time that the Marines, not the Army, were always in the thick of the fight. Is this true? If so, why does the Army get so much of the credit when we talk about fighting in Vietnam? By the way, how about telling the story of some of the pilots and crews who risked their skins to save you grunts? Doug, once again, pimps Semper Fi. As for who did most of the fighting, he says, that's an old argument between the Marines and everyone else. Personally, I've always thought that things usually worked out just about equal, but I'm not going to argue that here, certainly not with a jarhead. As for pilots, yeah, we 
will do something for them with them. They were tops and saved a whole lot of lives. Nom notes this month. Okay, troops, a short and easy one this time as we all take a little R&R. Absentee ballot, a way to vote when you're far from home. ARVN, a par- Army of the Republic of Vietnam, South Vietnam Zone troops. Bug out, run like blazes, get out of what is usually a bad spot. Cameron Bay, a big deep water port and base constructed by the U.S. as a supply point. Used for hospital and R&R area as the war went on. For the curious, it's now the Russians' only deep water port on the Sea of Japan slash South China Sea. Charlie, the Viet Cong, the enemy. DMZ, the demilitarized zone. The buffer between the two Vietnams. At this point, it was full of North Vietnamese troops. Donut dollies, familiar term for the Red Cross girls who brought some cheer and donuts to men at base bases all over Vietnam. R&R is rest and rehabilitation, getting back and fighting trim after months of danger and tension. Something everyone needed after a while. And of course, Uncle Sugar is Uncle Sam or the good old U.S. of A. Adds this month... Tengen is bringing Pac-Man to Nintendo. I never played this version of Pac-Man, but based is based on the screenshot, it kind of looks very close to the to the original arcade game. I have the Pac-Man for the Atari, which is notoriously terrible because it was like rushed for Christmas or whatever in like '83 or something. And um, but for some reason, we all have that nostalgia for Atari Pac-Man. You know, it's it's nowhere near as cool looking as the original Pac-Man, but uh, I don't know. Again, once again, it's it's a thing from when you were a kid and and you you remember it well. Uh, we have a fantasy gaming game called Fist F I S T with with periods. I don't know what it stands for. Oh, fantasy interactive scenarios by telephone. And in all honesty. If uh, you didn't <laughs> dial, if you didn't see an article, a picture of a of a monster shooting fire out of his eyes with carrying a flaming sword, you'd think that was something else. Um, so basically, you dial at sixty cents a minute only in the two one two seven one eight five one six and nine one four areas. So in the New York City area, because at the time two one two was Manhattan, seven eight seven one eight was Queens and Brooklyn, nine one four was Westchester, and five one six was Long Island. And they give you messages and you then you play or something. I don't know if this ever went anywhere. John Elway's quarterback kicks off in homes across America. The story so far. John Elway and young video whiz Danny Wimpasinger, and of course Danny has glasses, are engaged in a colossal struggle for the Wimpasinger household Supper Bowl championship. John Elway concentrating really hard. This kid's got me down by six points with only 30 seconds to go. The wily veteran looks over Danny's defensive alignment and checks off a screen pass. I've got him now. Danny thinks, I got him now. And mom says, dinner time, boys. And then there's a shot of John Elway wearing a helmet, the same helmet that's on the cover of the John Elway quarterback game. And it's like, it's almost like a barely bad Photoshop job. He's also holding a copy of Double Dragon and says, look for my new Nintendo entertainment game. Wherever you find Trade West, other blockbuster hit Double Dragon. 
John and Young Danny are playing the new game action video game from Trade West. John Elway's quarterback with line of scrimmage realism that puts you in the middle of the game like no other game can. You call the plays, you beat the blitz, you make it happen. Madden wouldn't be out for another few years. We have the Airwolf ad this time around instead of the Top Gun ad. We have the same 1943 ad that's run for the last couple of issues. Same ad for Magmax and Cycross. The quick shot for Hot Shots featuring oversized aviator glasses kid holding a joystick. And then a comic book for sale at JNS Comics at Red Bank, New Jersey. Ad that we've seen a couple times before. Bullpen bulletins this month. Uh, Shades of Assistant Editors Month. They shuffled around all the assistant editors for a day or something. Apparently, it was an extension of the weekly assistant editor classes that Mark Grunewald and Tom DeFalco used to hold uh, or holding at the time. You have what they did for Halloween. And John Romita Jr. and Chris Claremont got married, not to each other, to their, their wives. Uh, and then the next month heralds the return of the page to the legendary column by the man who started it all. That's right. They're bringing back Stan Soapbox. Hmm. Uh, Excelsior. The profile this time around is Mark Seri, who is the assistant editor on Captain America, Daredevil, Fantastic Four, Thor, and about 60,000 graphic novels. We have a one-time offer for Marvel Addict. Uh, Stan Lee brings you the Ultimate Marvel Collectibles, two exclusive videos, and a twenty and a, and a limited edition 25th anniversary poster. You have a video of how to draw comics the Marvel way and the X Men. And I guess it was a cartoon in their long-awaited first video with a special introduction by Stan Lee. Buy both videos and stand as a free autographed Marvel anniversary poster. Don't wait. This is a limited offer by New World Video. And since this was 89, New World Video um, would go bankrupt soon. <laughs> the same subscription ad with Ho 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 Bub. The inside cover, back cover is a Campbell's Can Do puzzle page. I don't, uh, basically, a bunch of puzzles. Can you complete all these puzzles and ruin your comic at the same time by drawing all over it? And the answers are on the bottom. And then there's a shot of the two Campbell Soup kids looking creepy at each other while they eat soup and saying, mm-mm, good. On the back is, uh, we have replaced the Taito Games ad with a TSR ad, Welcome to the 25th Century, for the Buck Rogers Battle for the 21st Century, 5th Century board game, which we had an, and to watch for books coming this fall, Buck Rogers Arrival and Crusader. And that does it for the nom number 29 and this issue and this episode of In Country. Uh, I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the nom number 30. Until then, take care and thanks for listening. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback 
can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom.